morning, everybody. Um, very early morning uh, podcast uh, between um, myself, Raja Ali Abdunur, and Dr. Michael Baron or Mike. This podcast is about improving diagnostic excellence more broadly, but specifically, we'll be talking about the assessment of clinical reasoning to drive diagnostic excellence. Without further ado, let me introduce my colleague and friend and our guest speaker today, Michael Baron. Mike is a MD MPH. He's vice president of competency-based assessment at the National Board of Medical Examiners, or the NBME. He's also a pediatrician and a medical educator. Uh, Mike completed his residency and chief residency in pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. While he was there on faculty, he served various leadership roles, including director of medical student education, assistant dean for student affairs, and associate dean for faculty educational development. He's developed curricula on clinical reasoning, and he spends a great deal of his time working on the assessment of clinical reasoning. Being a clinician who can't even recall receiving feedback on his clinical reasoning skills, and that's something that I think we all can agree with, certainly from my end, as an educator who's intent on teaching his learners conceptual frameworks for clinical reasoning, as well as the importance of remaining reflective along a journey to com- competence and expertise. Mike, thanks for joining. A brief word about myself. So I'm Raja Ali Abdulnoor. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. I did my residency training at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and I currently uh, am the Director of Educational Innovation at the NEJM Group, which publishes the New England Journal of Medicine. There, my goal is to improve diagnosis through education and specifically through assessment, and which is why I thought that uh, Mike would be a fantastic guest. Well, thanks for the kind introduction, Raja. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, you and I have had hours of discussion on what our vision is for improved education and improved clinical practice as it relates to clinical reasoning. So happy to jump right in. Super. I forgot to mention, Mike, that I do see you as a mentor. I remember we had a coffee at uh, in Phoenix a few few years before where I shared my, my frustration and vision to improve uh, education. And you're like, okay, do it. <laughs> and so uh, that's when I, I quit my lab uh, studying ARDS and uh, joined the, the, the journal. So to quickly sort of, you know, set up the, the stage, why we think assessment is important. So you and I have a shared goal to improve clinical reasoning and diagnosis via education. And I think the National Academy of Medicine has repeatedly stated it as one of its goals. Now, there's a lot of challenges, you know, like to date, it's been quite difficult to teach and assess clinical reasoning. I think there are several reasons which we can go into. I think one of which is that the process itself remains implicitly understood by many clinicians, including educators, despite the fact that we have actually pretty well-established cognitive models. In fact, I keep hearing that clinical reasoning is described as an art, which I think mystifies the process and it hinders its teaching. And so we have our work cut out for us. And so, you know, broadly, how can we promote a generalizable model of clinical reasoning education that promotes diagnostic excellence? One hypothesis I feel strongly about, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, is that this could be driven by assessment, meaning if we have a good method to assess clinical reasoning, both in a formative way, but also in a summative way, I think we can drive change, including curricular change. We can change behavior. And that's because I think, you know, you can't have feedback without assessment and you can't have learning without feedback. And also, I think there are other uh, industries out there. I'm thinking particularly about video games, which, as you know, is, is sort of near and dear to my heart, where it's all built on assessment in any particular scenario, including complex cognitive models. There are games of around building a civilization, for example. 
and where there's pretty deep assessment there given to the, the gamer in that setting. With that in mind, what are your thoughts on, on the role of assessment in driving learning, the role of assessment in changing behavior, and in sort of proving to society that our clinicians are, um, have sound clinical reasoning? I think you and I agree that assessment is probably the most underutilized quality improvement tool we have in medicine today. I don't consider myself a scholar in clinical reasoning, but I read the reports from scholars about the proportion of cognitive errors, of individual cognitive errors, then nested in teams, and of course, systems errors that lead to misdiagnosis. But I continue to think that a well-designed curriculum and assessment program is a way to drive quality improvement around diagnosis and to instill in our physicians this sense of metacognition, how to think about their thinking, and also um, the ability to engage in lifelong learning. One of my often myopias or nearsightedness when I'm um, so heavily invested in the education and training system as I am in my current work is that I sometimes forget people are in practice for 30 and 40 years. And that's where the bulk of the patient encounters happen. So I'm increasingly thinking about how can this impact education and training, but whether a platform, a program, a curriculum can also be accessible and valued by people who are in their clinical practice years. I think it's a great point. I keep saying, and I, and I think you said it actually as part of your um, defining yourself as a clinician yourself is I haven't gotten any feedback. I mean, I've been practicing for over a decade and nobody's ever told me other than I'm a nice guy, that my clinical reasoning is sound, or if it's not, why? In fact, you often hear the opposite. You know, when you do make a cognitive error or engage in misdiagnosis, you occasionally hear that. But in many cases, in nowadays clinical practice world, you don't because patients are coming in for urgent care and you never see them again. The fact that neither you nor I know whether or not we're good diagnosticians after practicing for many years is really a huge gap. One concern I have is if society to whom you know, we serve in a way as clinicians, but also as educators, right? We contribute to education to ensure that society has qualified and certified clinicians. You know, if society knows that the basic skill of a clinician, which is to reason, is not assessed, let alone the clinicians given feedback, is that a concern? Should be worried about this? Is this something that's defendable? Well, I think we have a tremendous commitment to society. Every healthcare system I've ever looked at in the world has challenges, and we know we have very unique challenges and that are not only physician practice and performance related, obviously. As a country, we have an aspiration to provide better healthcare. Maybe alter one thing you said. I think we do assess clinical reasoning and have increasingly so through some of the higher stakes what I might call fit-for-purpose examinations, examinations around certification in internal medicine, pediatrics, critical care medicine, and then certainly the licensing exam series on both the MD and the DO side that all physicians have to take to be licensed in a state or territory. But there are limitations of those exams. They're decontextualized. They typically happen in testing centers. They're not happening, as some people say, quote, in the wild, <laughs> And we generally use time in education and training as a marker of whether someone should be able to clinically reason. I'm a believer that a system of assessment has to have fit 
for purpose assessments. So we'll get into assessment for learning in this discussion, I'm sure. But even in the types of assessments that are meant to signal the public and reassure the public that a minimum standard has been met, we have work to do in driving what we can assess around clinical reasoning. You mentioned at the very beginning, process versus outcome. Right now, most even very well-written clinical vignettes that ask a learner or an examinee to engage in reasoning are still single best answer format. And we know that that doesn't hold true or that isn't the case in the clinical environment. That's very well said. You know, so we have challenges, just to, to, to summarize, we have challenges. We do have tools that have currently been validated to assess at some level clinical reasoning. Mm-hmm but more at an outcome level rather than a process. And when I think about this, I think about the challenges in assessing the process of reasoning. Mm-hmm. We mentioned there are well-established cognitive models of reasoning. At the NEJM, I've been working on, on tools to assess the process. Could a formative assessment through assessing the process start at the education level successfully? And could such a process transition to a lifelong learning. My vision through such tools is to start at the at the education level, at the school level, but then once validated and gain acceptance, hopefully transition this to a lifelong learning and assessment. Is this something that's achievable? I think it's something that's aspirational and I share your vision. Um, when we think it's achievable, my inclination is to say absolutely yes, but there are still some unknowns. In that coffee you mentioned in Phoenix, I think we both agreed that when we first read Judith Bowen's paper about driving the education and assessment of clinical reasoning, and then some of the work that Pat Crosscarry and other scholars did linking a clinical reasoning process to some of Daniel Kahneman's work, that was transformational for me. I was finally able to see with clarity that there was a scaffolding, there was a conceptual model that appealed to me and made sense for my clinical practice and teaching. But that is still a gap. You'll have to remind me when that Judith Bowen paper was published. 2006. 2006. So here we are in 2023. We're almost 20 years later, and we still have very implicit models of teaching. We still have many faculty who despite their excellent clinical practice, couldn't explain their own reasoning. They don't have a scaffolding upon which to build that explanation. And to me, that emphasizes what you said earlier, that this is about assessment, but it can't be solely about assessment. It must be assessment that is supported and grounded in good educational principles. My primary background is in curriculum development. So when I think about how to get there, I tend to think about how to build the educational process and how to have the assessment match the educational objectives. Well, what do you think is the obstacle there, right? I mean, like you said, there is a cognitive model around clinical reasoning itself. Judith Bowen wrote this article, which was illuminating to me, and thanks for pointing me towards it. I had, you know, again, I was, I'm, I'm still, a, I still am a budding a clinical reasoning scholar. You, uh, I think, updated that article or added some annotations to it. It was great. Yeah, yes, I did work with with Judith Jorensik and uh, Andrew Parsons, and we annotated it. You know, despite this, I, st- I'm still amazed that when I talk about clinical reasoning to to, to folks, which I do quite often, I still quite impressed by the aha moment that educators and sometimes deans of education have 
when I simply talk about the model itself. And why isn't that not more widespread? And why do you think it's the case? I think it's because my hypothesis mm-hmm. is, yeah. again, the lack, of, the lack of assessment, the lack of clear guidelines on how to assess this very complex model. But I'm not sure. I'm, I'm just quite impressed by why this is, is, is not happening at a faster, uh, faster pace. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's multifactorial. Maybe I'll draw a couple of connections. Uh, We know that through the patient safety movement, we've struggled with faculty development and faculty awareness of how to teach this, how to draw on conceptual models and build it into curricula. At Johns Hopkins, where we both spend time, I thought that work was concentrated in a very small group of people. There was great challenge in democratizing that skill set to a faculty who had never learned that during their education and training. I think the same is true today around principles of um, anti-racism and anti-oppression. We have a faculty that was never really trained in this, doesn't really understand or link it to the way medicine is practiced in many ways, yet are very devoted to being able to teach the next generation of learners what they need to know. So we have examples there of medical education moving very slowly. I agree with you that assessment drives curriculum. The one place I've seen it drive curriculum the most is probably around communication skills training. In my work at NBME, having overseen the clinical skills exam, which has now been discontinued, that exam had an upside of driving resources available at medical schools to teach clinical skills and particularly driving a conceptual model or framework around communication skills, the basics, opening the interview, gathering information, et cetera. So I've seen examples where I think an assessment method can actually drive curriculum. We haven't gotten there in clinical reasoning for reasons I've just described, and also I think because of our perpetual use of high-stakes assessments as the gold standard, because I think it drives a culture that single best answer is what is valued, and expressing how you are thinking, since it is currently not assessed, is less valued. As we develop these new assessments on the process, I believe that both learners and faculty will see more value in that. Thanks for sharing that about the clinical skill exam. It's a great example of a tool or a you know an exam that has driven, despite it being discontinued, it did drive some curricular changes. And resources. And resources, correct. So in other words, if, if such a clinical reasoning assessment exam or wh- whether it's a high-sec exam or whether it's a longitudinal formative and summative, quantitative formative assessment, I'm thinking here about the multiple choice questions used to certify internal medicine specialties every 10 years have now transitioned to what sounds to me like a more formative exercise where every three months I answer, you know, 30 multiple choice questions, but then get immediate feedback and actual learning. You know, this could be a step in the right direction. Yeah, it's a great point. So in the continuous certification world, both in your world and my world, internal medicine, pediatrics, probably you at some of the subboard levels as well, we've moved to a series of assessment for learning that is, in my view, both high stakes and lower stakes. We're not there yet in our national dialogue around something like licensure. And licensure comes with the complexities of state medical practice acts in multiple states and territories. I think we are getting there in initial certification. 
I just returned from the ABMS meeting, the American Board of Medical Specialties, and increasingly I'm hearing the member specialty boards, some of them, talk about what a portfolio could look like for initial certification, that it isn't all based on a single high stakes examination. I think there's some momentum there. So in other words, an example on the ground would be in longitudinal methods of assessment, where it'd be on clinical reasoning, but it could also be on communication, on on knowledge. And such a longitudinal assessment could be assessment as learning, for learning, but then by maybe deriving learning curves and establishing where learners are in respect to these different competencies, maybe come up with a a score sheet, so to speak, of, of, of learners that may or may not be used for high-stake decision in terms of graduation, but can certainly be used for specific remediation. Meaning, if a learner is has opportunities for growth in, let's say, forming a problem representation or delivering bad news, but has excellent fund of knowledge in cardiovascular diseases, then that learner could be allowed to graduate or move on to the next uh, milestone, but with some remediation in, in these particular areas. That sounds to me like it's a pretty attractive learning environment. And I think over time that will be feasible. A lot of what you're describing there feels like precision education or a precision approach to education. Why are we continuing to live by a one-size-fits-all model? My YouTube algorithm knows that I like a certain type of video of people cycling in the country. (laughs) It doesn't show me other things. (laughs) Um, So... Can we get to a point where we understand somebody's strengths and don't waste time simply delivering content that would only support those strengths where we look at other gaps and uh, deliver content or practice to do so? And I agree with you, whether that can be used for high stakes decision making at this time, it's probably as much a policy question as it is a validity question. I think we are beginning to understand that validity is more than just a quantitative argument. It is a series of arguments. I believe that portfolio would make us or allow us to make good decisions, even summative decisions. We have big transitions in medical training from medical school to residency where ranking and sorting and high stakes decision making still predominate. Those are some of the policy issues that I think get in the way of that aspirational learning curve model that you said. There are gaps in assessment of, of clinical reasoning, uh, despite decades of knowledge and, and research around cognitive models. The reasons are multiple, including uh, challenges in faculty development, the lack of assessment metrics and tools. Then we expanded this to the idea of formative assessment, but maybe a portfolio of formative assessments, including around clinical reasoning. And maybe shy away of this concept of high stake versus low stake, and maybe there's something like a medium stake assessment, which combines it all. And we have a world where formative assessment could be used for high-stake decisions. I think it's an interesting uh, paradigm shift there. Mm-hmm. Or at least some component of a high-stakes decision. Yes. Focus a little bit on this uh, precision medical education, which, as you know, is something that Sanjay Desai from the AMA has uh, been pushing for. And as he mentions often, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a salient point, is the challenge to deliver precision medical education is maybe centered on obtaining precision assessment, meaning at the learner level, assessing their knowledge, their communication, and their reasoning. And and I think that highlighted early on the importance of artificial intelligence and machine learning tools to augment uh, educators' ability to identify areas of growth in a particular learner. I can tell you that from my end, 
on developing interactive tools to teach and assess clinical reasoning, I'm very excited about, and when I say excited in both a, a you know, a bullion, exuberant way, but also in a, in a wary way about large language models in particular to augment not only education, but assessment. I'll give you an example. There are several rubrics out there for assessment mm-hmm. of clinical reasoning. These rubrics are typically taught to faculty. That group of faculty then uses that rubric to evaluate, let's say, a written assessment by a resident mm-hmm. or a patient node or something. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe more like a clinical reasoning argument, a problem representation, even management. And what I've tried is I've taught a large language model, a rubric, and I've given it clinical reasoning arguments by medical students, and I've asked it to assess it. And it's pretty impressive. And so I can imagine how better validation of that tool could really help in scaling up assessment of clinical reasoning at the learner level. Am I crazy? About this or about things in general? (laughs) I'm kidding. You always have to inject a little humor into a podcast. I don't think you're crazy at all. Uh, Here's the way I think about it. A very simplistic way is that every assessment, even in the workplace, has to have a stimulus, a response, and some sort of scoring system or rubric. Let's even take that to the workplace. The patients are the stimulus. The response would be whatever that response would be. You and I both spend hours and hours on morning rounds where we were talking through the way we were reasoning about patient diagnosis and management. That's the response. In the workplace, in today's environment, there is no standardized way of scoring, um, and we're usually left to the idiosyncrasies of any individual reader. Contrast that to a testing center, multiple choice, computer-based examination where the stimulus is very clear. It's the patient vignette. The response is single best answer in many cases, not in all cases, but in most cases. And then the scoring system flows pretty simply from there. So how do we think about different types of assessments and the promise of large language models, or even the promise of automated scoring through natural language processing, which doesn't rely on generative AI. As we dive into formative assessment of clinical reasoning, can this learner create a mental model of a patient and share a problem representation? Is this person engaging in hypothesis-directed history-taking or physical examination? These are things that we've not really described we know what they are based on the conceptual frameworks and based on Michelle Daniels' work, where there were, I believe, seven subcompetencies underlying clinical reasoning. But we've never been able to give learner feedback on those pieces. In a designed assessment where there is a stimulus, when we're looking at those specific pieces, the responses become much more complicated to score. They become what you describe, a narrative about one's clinical reasoning, a reasoning argument that's much more challenging than a single best answer to be able to score. Enter artificial intelligence. And I believe that's going to be the key for us to score and provide feedback, or at least provide a profile to learners on where they are. That experiment that you did is beginning to show us that uh, assuming we're not making errors or incorrect inferences based on the data the LLM was trained on, we could be able to give learners this. The next piece of that is that learners have to value that information in an educational system. If what they are really being judged on is single best answer, 
I don't believe they're going to value that information that we're giving them back. And I'll finish with one more thing. This is moving so fast. And to your point of your experiment, um, there was recently an article published out of Stanford where GPT 3.5 and 4 essentially did better than students on the clinical reasoning exam. I think that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Mm-hmm. I'm beginning to start thinking, are we skating to where the puck is going? Are the competencies that we believe to be important now, the competencies that a physician is going to need in the next 20 years? It's hard for me to think about a physician not being a strong diagnostician, but if I contrast the focus on medical knowledge during my medical school and early residency training and how that's changed because of the democratization of knowledge given the internet, I think that was an example of us really holding on to something that physicians had done and not really adapting to new technology. In the reasoning space, I wonder what the physician competencies are truly going to be. Are we thinking about those too much in the current model or past model and in a good effort trying to use LLM to make those things measurable now? But will those be the same competencies 20 years from now where artificial intelligence is integrated in, into all aspects of practice? I don't know. I don't know why, but that thought just uh, drove chills down my spine. Because, <laughs> uh... <laughs> Maybe creating a problem representation won't be an important competency 20 years from now. I'd like to think it still will be, but I'm not sure. I think there's opportunity there for us to try to think about that and Again, a message to our listeners. I mean, this is, this is, I think the National Academy of Medicine's, uh, Diagnostic Excellence Scholar is a great forum for us to maybe think together about what are going to be the competencies in 10, 20, maybe 30 years. Um, I think that's fascinating. Uh, shift gears a little bit to something maybe a little bit more personal, Mike. Can you give us a little bit of your own personal story and what angled you or drove you to your current role and passion of improving diagnosis through education and particular assessment? I think the big stages of my career were first clinician teacher. I valued my training a great deal. I I think I would actually go back to residency. I'm not sure I would go back for $17,000 a year, which was my intern salary (laughs) or something like that. I know somebody's going to check that now, but it was close. (laughs) But my training was just a thrilling part of my career, being in that environment of inquiry And then when I really stepped back, I realized, gosh, it could have been so much better. It was already great, but it could have been so much better. First bucket of my career was a clinician teacher. I wasn't thinking about education in a formal or certainly wasn't thinking about pedagogy or andragogy. Those were words I don't think I even knew. I was seeing patients. I was teaching in both ambulatory and inpatient settings. And then I really moved into the life of a clinician educator where I was trying to contribute to the scholarly discourse. And at some point, and Raja, I think you and I share this, we realize we can make many local changes for good, but that true systems change might mean a shift in one's career. Uh, I came to NBME because of my interest in assessment, my interest in first, the contract that medicine has with the public around the trust the public instills in medicine. What is our obligation? How can we enhance that obligation through assessment, and what are our opportunities to build new assessment. And then systems change in general. As you said, you're trying to drive educational systems change. 
If you were in a single institution, you could do that, but in your current position, you might have more resources and a different platform to be able to do that more effectively. So I think we share that. As I move into later stages of my career, I increasingly engage in systems thinking, what levers need to be pulled to be able to move us in the right direction? I've spent a lot of time thinking about the transition to residency. I've spent a lot of time thinking about assessment systems overall. And I realize that everything is a system. One part affects the other part a great deal. We have some paradigm for formative assessment in medical education. And increasingly, or maybe even oddly, that's driven at the clinical practice continuing certification side. We've realized that we can do this. It's an acceptable alternative to every 10-year high-stakes exams for those people in practice. And we also believe in many cases we're driving learning. I did some of my continuing cert questions just recently. I read five articles as a preparation for it. I really felt like I engaged in some learning there. I'd like to see that trickle down into the UME environment because I think the UME environment has many opportunities for improvement now. Among those, democratized curricula and a focus on the competencies that truly matter. I've always thought that it's a more of a trickle-up approach. <laughs> Again, a cohort effect, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, where things start at the you know at the UME level and trickle up. But it's true that this is could be a, a counterexample where things could trickle down, and then it also may bring me. You know, do the different certification uh, bodies talk to each other? Meaning, mm. I can see here a, an opportunity for synergy. I think there's increasing collaboration across the groups in the House of Medicine. Remember, MBME isn't just certifying body; it provides examinations to states and territories for them to make licensing decisions. But if we focus, perhaps, and we've talked a lot about member specialty boards today, the American Board of Pediatrics, in my case, American Board of Internal Medicine, in your clinical practice case, I'm seeing increasing collaboration about what initial certification could look like. Certainly what continuing certification could look like. That's, that's happened to some extent. The flavors are all a little bit different. The diplomates get a slightly different experience that is based on some core principles or foundation, but it's a little bit different. My platform for continuing certification in pediatrics differs a little bit from what anesthesia might have or something to that effect. And some boards are measuring slightly different competencies than others. So let's say there's been collaboration there or there's been a shared model of what this could be. Now I'm seeing that shared model happen around initial certification. I mentioned I just returned from ABMS. I saw incredible collaboration between family medicine, surgery, pediatrics, and I know also orthopedics is moving fast on a competency-based medical education model. Can that trickle down into UME and the earlier stages of GME? I think the setting is right. There are harmonized milestones now across the specialties. We realize there are important intersections in that Venn diagram that you described. We still have some policy issues. The transition to residency, as I mentioned, I think about a lot. I think that's an enormous, enormous influencer in the manner in which education is delivered and what learners value today. We know that learners may say, <laughs> I'm going to use very careful language there, that if it doesn't help me position myself for residency, I'm less interested in this content. I certainly don't think that's true of all learners, but 
I've heard that as a curriculum director. It appears in the medical literature. I'm not saying something that people don't know already. Until we begin to truly move the needle on what is measured is what is valued. This is the difference between formative and summative assessment. Right now, there's a lot of conflation and learners feel unsafe. They don't know if every formative assessment we're asking them to engage in is actually being used summatively. Those are some hurdles we have to get over for people to value formative assessment of clinical reasoning, formative assessment of communication skills, whatever the competency is. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's uh, what I've heard, you know, through my work is there's an immediate apparent value to uh, a tool that teaches and assesses clinical reasoning. Mm -hmm. But because there are no high stake assessments of it, learners love it, but need to find the time to do it. But also stakeholders, you know, the deans of education and the people that hold the budgets also link uh, some of these tools to uh, to performance and, and high-stake exams. And I think so it's a challenge all over, not only for learners. It's a nice-to-have as opposed to a must-have. And going back to your point earlier about precision education, we don't have the data set, we don't have the analysis yet to know that if a learner engages in, for example, formative assessment of clinical reasoning as a student, they are better diagnosticians less likely to make diagnostic errors when they're on faculty or when they're on medical staff. That arc of performance, we don't know. And until we start to build the argument around that, I think we'll continue to struggle with resource allocation being, this sounds like a nice tool, but is it absolutely necessary when somebody comes to support it? I keep thinking, you know, I've been working on, on, on my work Pretty much in silo, we have a great uh, group of advisors, but I keep thinking that there needs to be sort of like a, a group effort there. I'm really enjoying this. I there's a, you know one topic we can hit on, uh, Mike, is uh, fairness in assessment. I think we talked about LLMs. That's also potentially its own podcast. Yeah, and and probably above my pay grade too. You'll have to get another <laughs> another expert in there. I'm impressed when I can remember that it's LLM and not LMM. Yeah. <laughs> Fairness and assessment is a very important area of my work, and it's a passion of mine. So let me mention one thing. I work at NBME. NBME, I think, does tremendous work in fairness in testing. And fairness in testing, in my view of the world, is a component of fairness and assessment overall. Fairness in testing would include things like standardized test conditions, the very coordinated efforts to make sure that content is developed that doesn't stereotype or doesn't have group differences in performances to the best that we can control them, and things like differential item function analysis on items. Many high-stakes programs do that. Fairness and assessment, I think of because most assessment happens in the workplace, is much more complicated. I know as a clerkship director for more than a decade that my learners had differential experiences based on the way they looked or based on their introverted or extroverted behavior in the workplace, many, many different variables, gender issues, race and ethnicity issues, et cetera. You know, we all come to the encounter with our own personal stories, yep. which I think is a key step. Uh, Rajela, you're an international medical graduate. You're at the top of your field, but I bet somebody made an incorrect assumption about what an international medical graduate knew or didn't know when they were precepting you. Oh, yeah. I have a good story there. If you have time, I can share it. I'll go quick. We have tremendous improvement to achieve in fairness and assessment overall 
affordances to learning opportunities, the manner in which clinical assessments or narrative assessments demonstrate bias against certain learners. All of that is nested in the work we do in assessment design. We must include fairness and equity as part of the overall validity argument of an assessment we're building or an assessment that exists now. It can't be simply a quantitative argument. It has to be an argument about differential impact and hopefully being able to elevate and provide equity for all learners who deserve that. That's a tremendous thing. I think the Macy Foundation has done really excellent work in equity and assessment overall. I point to a recent supplement in academic medicine for those who are interested. Yeah, so I came to the States a couple of years after after 9-11, and so I already felt a little bit um, anxious. And so when I applied for residency, and particularly at Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, I was told, you know, you're, we don't take students from uh, American University of Beirut, which is where I did my medical school. I was not surprised because it was the case for, I would say, almost all of the top echelon uh, residency programs. But then I, you know, I subsequently matched there and that same person came back and said how impressed they were and recommended me for, you know, being a chief resident uh, in medicine. But subsequently, every year, Johns Hopkins would take a student from the American University of Beirut to be a, to be a resident there. It highlighted to me stereotypes, breaking stereotypes and familiarity. That's all it takes is the personal, you know, personal encounters, the personal experiences between in this particular example, you know, an international medical graduate and a American experienced academic center to sort of break the stereotype. Even though there was some angst that initially it was just by pushing through, I think it was very, very helpful. Well, I think we've, we've very much zoomed out from clinical reasoning, but I, we're talking about core issues that relate to assessment overall, the biases and the affordances, et cetera. If we zoom back in on clinical reasoning, it is a case study or a use case for our thinking about all of those issues related to good assessment design, focusing on formative assessment as an adjunct to learning and improvement over time, and also contextualizing those into the manner in which assessment is operationalized in a system that it must be fair and must be equitable. So uh, maybe we'll wrap it up. I don't know what's your favorite media, whether it's books, uh, movies, or video games. I suspect it's not the latter. If you can maybe give us a couple of suggestions of what are you know some good books you've read recently or good uh, shows or, or movies you've seen. Uh, a good book. Um, <laughs> a good uh, I'm, I'm reading two good books right now, um, and I'm making slow progress on both. Uh, one of them is a book called Robert E. Lee and Me. My wife bought it for me. It's written by a former brigadier general at West Point. I don't read fiction. I'll just say that right off the bat. <laughs> uh, the second book I'm reading is a book by Eric Larson. I've read a number of Eric Larson's books, um, everything from Devil in the White City to Thunderstruck. Uh, this is called The Splendid and the Vile, and it's essentially about Churchill's first year and the threat of Nazi Germany on the British Isle, basically, in particular, the government in England. I read books about that period of time, but it's given me this insight into what life was like during that time and the hardships that people were going through all throughout Europe, in addition to some of the galvanization it takes to truly change the world. Now, uh, maybe that's way, way beyond our 
clinical reasoning desires, but I do think it takes a galvanization. It takes a coalition to make change. And it's had me reflect on my own small area of work about the coalitions it would take to actually institute a different future for medical education and training. It's also a very interesting read. I'm going to echo that. I've read the book. It's a fascinating read. Yeah. But it also highlights the importance of stories. And it links to another book I'm a fan of, which is Sapiens by Harari. And how it takes stories to change, to create uh, religions, companies, uh, countries, money. And that as humans, we, we hang on to stories to drive culture. And I do think around clinical reasoning, around education, it's, uh, even around, around differential diagnosis. Like, for example, illness scripts are stories, right? And so how can we sort of like deconstruct the story of clinical reasoning as, a, as an art? and push a story of clinical reasoning as a science that we can actually help you grow through assessment, ultimately towards improving uh, patient lives, making sure that, you know, when I see a physician, it's the same way that when I go on a plane, I'm more worried about the drinks I'm going to get as opposed to whether I'm, I'm going to land. But that may not always be the case in, a, in, a, in the clinical environment. Yeah, stories are powerful. I, I think you and I will both be at the meeting of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. I noticed one of the plenary speakers is Jake Tapper, and uh, I've heard some of his family story about a misdiagnosis, which I think related to maybe a ruptured appendix in his daughter. A tricky diagnosis to make, I can tell you, having been on the diagnostic side of that. Stories are what draw people in, compel people, and realize that there is urgency for change. So completely agree with you there. So I think that's a wrap, Mike. I like this so much, I want to do it again. <laughs> Me too. We could go for another hour. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, feel free to reach out to me or Mike. Any questions, we can send out references of some of the things we talked about today. And, and see you next time, I hope. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. 